sensible chat. Budgeting made easy. Really easy. Welcome to Sensible Chat with your host, Sensible Bobby, the show that is all about budgeting. In this episode, Bobby talks emotional spending. Our guest professor, Brenton Mix, author of The Frequency of Wealth, is here to enlighten us to the philosophical side of wealth. But first, let's bring in the budgeting maven. Here's Sensible Bobby. Thanks, Scott. We usually talk about budgeting, but today we're going to change focus and dig into the human psyche a little bit. Because for most of us, there's a lot of emotion wrapped up in our money habits. And it turns out that simple math and a plan on paper isn't always enough. Sometimes there are deeper issues that need to be dealt with before we can have what some might consider a healthy relationship with money. So let's talk about emotional spending. There are many that suggest people tend to spend more money during bouts of stress and unhappiness. In fact, there's a research paper that was written by four psychologists who specialize in emotional regulation, and they found that sad individuals spend as much as 300% more as someone who's in a happier mindset. So why does being unhappy make us spend more money? According to OneSmartDollar.com, there are several reasons. One, you just don't care. Yeah, when you're unhappy, you're a lot more likely to feel detached from your goals. I know I've had a lot of situations where I thought, okay, I'm just done being stressed with money. I don't want to worry about it anymore. I don't care. And then I'll go out and spend. And yeah, ultimately, I don't feel any better. I actually feel worse because now I've spent money that I didn't have, which stresses me out more, which is what I was trying to get rid of in the first place. So it really doesn't work out that well. Another reason people overspend or spend when they're unhappy is because money seems trivial. Is that accurate? Yeah. If there's a death in the family or a natural disaster or a divorce, it's really hard to see the importance of money because, of course, everything else is gangbusters in your eyes right at that moment. And this is a time when a lot of people will overspend because you'll really do anything to end a crisis in your family or in your life, right? So we tend to spend a lot more irrationally and emotionally from that standpoint than we would if we were actually thinking rationally about it. And that leads right into the last point, I think. You confuse spending money with making you happy. Right. If you're unhappy, you lose perspective of the little things that actually make you happy. So now you're trying to go out and spend to fill a void in your life. And in the end, what you buy doesn't really make you happy. The act of it might for a few minutes. But in the end, that unhappiness is still there because it's based on something else rather than whatever you bought. So you just want to remember to focus on the things that actually make you happy instead of trying to fill the void with whatever it might be, whether it's going out and spending or eating or any of those kind of habits. Well, sensible Dr. Bobby, then tell me, (laughs) what can you do to set yourself up for success against emotional spending? Yeah, I did a lot of reading about this online because, of course, this happens to all of us at one time or another. And I got a lot of ideas from websites like Forbes.com, Experian.com, Investopedia.com. It's kind of everywhere. And one of their suggestions is to not make purchases when you're sad because whatever it is that you want to purchase can wait until your mind is in a better place. Another thing they suggest is finding other ways to make yourself feel better when you're down. Read a book, talk to a friend, anything that will shift your attention. Think of it as a strategic distraction, which is something that our guest is going to get into in much detail. 
Another way to set yourself up for success is to know your emotional spending triggers. Take the time to really think about this and be honest with yourself. Make a list of the things that trigger you to spend emotionally, and that's going to help you identify when you're likely to fall into emotional spending. When you know those triggers are coming on, you can redirect yourself before you get into trouble. And that brings us to one of my favorites, which is the 48-hour rule. And it basically means that instead of dropping an item into your shopping cart, whether you're shopping online or at a store, you write down the name of the item you want to buy and the price on a notepad. Then just give yourself 48 hours to decide if it's really worth it to you. Ask yourself if it fits into your budget, or are there other things you'd rather spend that money on? Then after the 48 hours is over, you can decide whether it's really worth it. Another idea, and I know that some of us are not going to like this very much, but remove all the spending apps from your phone and unsubscribe to emails that encourage you to spend. This can really cut down on the temptation to spend without thinking, especially when you're emotional. Retailers make it super easy to spend the money, so you have to work at making it a bit harder for yourself. Another idea is to use your support system. Get with a friend who can be the practical side to the emotional distress you're experiencing right now. That may help you not spend the money until you're in a more rational state of mind. And I love this one. Go window shopping. The Journal of Consumer Psychology cited a study indicating that hypothetical shopping can improve your mood just as much as actual shopping, but of course, without the hit to your pocketbook. And of course, this is the one I think is most important. Establish a budget you can stick to. This is going to give you a certain amount of spending money, so if you choose to use that on retail therapy, you can do it without the guilt. But your budget is going to keep you from going too far and making purchases that you really can't afford, which is going to cause you more stress in the end. But even with all these safeguards in place, it may be hard to stay on track because we feel like we're depriving ourselves. For the greater good, maybe. But as long as it still feels like deprivation, we're going to have a really hard time. So what can we do? How about changing our outlook on life in general? If our philosophical view of wealth and happiness were different, would all of this even be an issue? Brenton Mix is going to help us answer that question. Okay, class, Sensible University is now in session. Today's guest professor is Brenton Mix, author of The Frequency of Wealth. He is a skilled entrepreneur with almost 30 years of business experience. He has founded or co-founded nine companies, which have generated over $2.5 billion in new product revenue in five different sectors of the economy, while employing nearly 40,000 people over the past two decades. His companies have spanned the globe with various operations in the U.S., Europe, Central and South America, and Asia. Welcome back to the classroom, everybody. When I was about six years old, we were living in Nebraska, and my brother met a little boy named Brent. As they became better friends, our parents became better friends as well, so we all ended up spending a lot of time together. But over the years, through moves and time and life, we all lost contact until Facebook reconnected us. Fast forward to a couple months ago, and I was so excited to see a post announcing Brent had just published a new book. When I saw the title, I was so excited I knew I had to get my hands on it. My mom saw that post too, so guess what I got for Christmas? I read the book on New Year's Eve, and it gave me a whole new perspective for 2019. So I knew I had to get him on the podcast and share this information with all of you. Ladies and gentlemen, my friend and the author of The Frequency of Wealth, Brenton Mix. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. We really appreciate it. 
Oh, it's my pleasure. I was surprised to see some of the reaction to the post about your book because it seemed like nobody, not even your sister, knew you were even writing this book. <laughs> so I got to ask what led you to write it. So it's funny because I did not realize I was keeping it a secret. I didn't mean to do that, but I tend to be pretty private about the things that I'm working on. One of the, uh, I guess, techniques that I utilize is to keep my energy really focused, is not to overshare things that I'm working on and writing for me is kind of hard work. And so I would want to stay, I guess, as high on the energy scale as I can and not diminish it by sharing. Although that wasn't like my grand plan, but it ended up being true. And I didn't realize that till I, the book was published. And then I had people like my own family really shocked that I was writing a book. And I didn't know that I was not sharing that with anyone. But what led me to write was my own experience buying into the belief of Whoever suffers the most gains the most, essentially. It's really reinforced in athletics and in business and finances. There are other places in life where it's not as reinforced, but there it seems like everybody has really bought into, I think, the lie, but certainly the myth that suffering equals achievement. Whoever can suffer the longest for the longest amount of time ends up with the most medals and achievements at the end of that. And I bought that probably as much or more than anyone, certainly more than anyone that I knew. I grew up in the traditional Protestant work ethic, working hot tar roofing with my father since I was four years old. And I was taught to work very, very hard from a very young age. And so I went through that for a long time and kept experiencing these monumental collapses that were bigger than all of my effort. And by the third major cycle, after building a number of really successful companies that anybody on the outside looking in would think that, hey, this guy has really got it. And not just around dollars and cents, but also, you know, relationships and my spiritual journey and just being a fairly well-rounded human being, yet something invisible was continuing to outflank me. And it wasn't obvious. I didn't know what it was, and it took a number of years for me to really see a pattern at work. And I mean, I didn't know these were cycles until I, by the third major collapse, I'm looking back, I'm like, it has to be coming from me. There's no other really good explanation. And I was really kind of almost forced to reevaluate basically how reality exists in this dimension, which is something I've always been fascinated with. And so that process led me to some really significant breakthroughs that were more shocking to me than probably anyone. And then I went through a process that did a shortness up to it working for me extraordinarily well on kind of every level that's important, which is what I would say is success on the inside and on the outside. I don't shy away from money at all. And I really like money. I like a lot of money. I like the things that money can do. I love nice stuff. You know, I love the old Churchill quote. I'm a man of simple tastes, easily satisfied with the best. I think it's a grand ambition to want the finest sorts of things in life. So I don't shy away from that, but I include everything else too, you know, like health, happiness, and all those sorts of things. And so it worked really, really well for me. And then people kind of started finding me. I was pretty successful in my particular silo. And so people would ask me to mentor them and I would take them through this very unusual process. And it worked every single time. And by the end of that, I decided it would be more effective if I wrote down my process. And through that, a small publisher contacted me and wanted to pick it up and turn it into a book. And I was like, well, it's not really enough for a complete book. And that's when we decided to turn it into a series. 
The Frequency of Wealth is the first book in a series of books that are forthcoming. That's so exciting. And I can't wait to read the other books. I'm sure they're just going to be fabulous. This like one Harry certainly series. is. Yeah, like yeah, exactly. <laughs> you don't even know what Dumbledore is going to do next. <laughs> uh, I, I've already written a lot on the second one. I'm really excited about these next books because the first one was, I hope, the hardest because taking a person I'd never met and trying to establish the fundamental principles of this, for lack of a better word, philosophy was difficult. But once I've got that framework, what I would consider the master's degree and kind of PhD levels of this reality creation is the stuff that I really get jazzed about. So this book two and three are already kind of like flowing out of me pretty well that this first one was much more difficult. Awesome. I can't wait for those. So let's go back to the beginning because there are a lot of people that believe when someone goes from being poor to being a millionaire like you did, the problems just poof, disappear. Is that an accurate assessment? Well, that's what I believe, too. Even if you don't say those words, there's something inside of us that really believes that if I just go out and make this world outside of me, this physical world, submit somehow, I can wrestle satisfaction out of life. And so that wasn't my experience. And, you know, for every person like me who's gone from poverty to at least external wealth, it's a pretty consistent story. So I had to really address that. The short answer is no. None of the problems went away. I mean, a few problems, like it's stressful to like be stressed out about food. You know, I lived a long time on $20 a week for food, selling plasma. That was my food budget. I did that for more than two years when I was, you know, starting my first company. And, you know, I'd been on my own for a long time and I didn't really have any support from parents or anything like that. And so it was really, really hard. So it is money can help a little bit take off the pressure of like food and keeping a shelter. But what it does then expose, or at least it did for me, was the real boogeymen of my internal life. And they came out big time. So one of the great things about running after money or running after goals, or let's say you're trying to be an Olympic athlete or whatever, you're trying to finish college or get your master's degree, whatever your pursuits are, it's a really fun distraction from a lot of maybe things like me, which are you know childhood trauma and a bunch of other things that I experienced that had really impacted my nervous system. And that did not go away the minute I accomplished all of those things. What did go away is hope. Hope ran out. So the hope that millions of dollars or marriage or children or getting the perfect life was going to fix me, hope ran out. And that's a really interesting place to be. When you've accomplished everything that you thought would, even without saying it, you thought would fix it, in quotes, and now you're sitting here having done that with nothing else to try, that's a dark place. Yeah, that leads right into the introduction of your book, where you talk about how you used to believe, as many do, that wealth and success come from hard work, persistence, and effort. But in time, obviously, you realized that that recipe wasn't working. So what was missing? Joy. Joy was missing. Happiness, playfulness was missing for me. Now, here's what's really, I think, different. This is why the one-on-one work that I do with folks is so successful, because These are words, words like effort, suffering. They're words, they're symbols that we utilize to represent something. And not everybody has the same exact definition because for some people who love what they do, it's hard work, but they enjoy it. You know, it's every old saying, like, I love the uh, New Thought Movement guys, starting with Emerson and moving all the way up to like, like Emmett Fox right before World War I. I love those guys. So it's like, follow your bliss and you know, all that kind of stuff that was a real metaphysical revolution was kind of happening at that time. 
And, you know, they've had it, but this stuff's been around for thousands of years. Sure. But I bought the suffering so much that I was doing stuff I hated. I started in the call center business. There's oh. nothing fun about that, I can tell you. <laughs> but it was the only thing that was in front of me. And it was like, this is what you got to do to get to where you want to go. You've got to eat your vegetables first. Everybody knows that. But in fact, it's not true. Joy is far more powerful than suffering to accomplish even outward results. But the outward results that we're trying to get are to be like, we think those things will make us happy, which is another way of saying joy. Right. And so if you just start there and you start with the joy, everything works far more effectively, far more quickly, but then you don't really need those external things quite as much. And then they more effortlessly manifest, or I like the term realize. It's taking something in a less form state and turning it into something more real or realizing or manifesting it. So the thing that was missing was joy. So do you believe in the statement, do what you love and the money will follow? I do, but that's tricky. That's yeah. just a statement. There's only now, there's the ever present now. Like one of the things that I love playing with is the illusion of time. I mean, all this stuff is kind of an illusion, but it's a really persistent one, as Einstein said. And that's part of the real magic trick that is so enjoyable is the real stable nature of this quote unquote reality. If in fact, we're all experiencing a similar reality, which we don't actually know. So some people can say those words, but they're not day by day, moment by moment, actually doing it. And the other thing is, depends on who you are. Not everybody needs big numbers on a screen in the form of a bank account or a 401k. You know, some of the highest level metaphysical players, people like Christ, money is of almost no meaning. So it's for those of us like downstream. But I will tell you this, and that's why I like the term wealth. Do what you love and wealth will effortlessly follow. That's for sure. And for most people, they don't need big numbers. They have the love of family and friendships and their health and vitality, purpose, all of those kind of internal mechanism. I love the term vitality or life force. Outside of the emotional guidance system, that's the one I pay attention to the most. I like to lean into the things that really um, stoke up the life force flowing through me. And the things that light me up that way are the things that I want to pursue. I was very intrigued by the chapter in your book on the radio dial of wealth. And you state that an effective metaphor for how to manifest wealth is a car radio. I am dying to hear what you mean by this. Well, I hope it's an effective metaphor. <laughs> it certainly is one that I enjoy, which is, I utilize the term emotional guidance system, how you feel on the inside, is emitting a vibrational frequency that exactly matches over time the external reality that you experience, which is very similar to how a car radio works or XM radio or whatever. I mean, 30 years from now, this metaphor might not work. Right. It probably won't be radio. But right now, that frequency emission, so when you tune to 97.5, the music is already streaming 24-7, but you tune up to that, and now that reality becomes true for you. But did you create the music? Did you have to effort all of the music and the reality of that channel? No, you just tune to it. But it was there the whole time. And that is my experience and all of the people that I've worked with experience around wealth. Things like wealth, health, abundance, the feeling of connection, the feeling of worth, all of those things are already here. It's not something you need to go get. And when you tune to it, it becomes your reality. So as you tune up to these higher frequencies, and I use that way of describing it because it works the best way, which is on the higher end, the upper end, 
frequencies of abundance and health and vitality and meaning and purpose are also best known to us by our emotional guidance system. And they feel like peace, love, joy, well-being, you know, a consistent state of happiness. When you tune up to those, it magically seems like magic. It magically appears. That's quite a thing to do, to go from someone like me that was in turmoil and strife and frustration and despair and depression, all of the things that I was living in day in, day out that I thought money, not just money, but power would solve for me. I was creating a constant life for myself that I would have to struggle and effort and fight against and all of those things. I do think that like the peace that passes all understanding, when you get to a real state of peace, and we've all experienced this, let's say that you find yourself feeling really, really great. Maybe you got a promotion, maybe something didn't externally have to happen. Maybe the sun was just on your face and you saw somebody smile at you and it just made you feel really, really good. And all of a sudden life is great. All of the effort from there, the decision-making, all of that stuff is far more effective. Most of the decisions I made in the first 15 years of my professional career that started at 19, when I started my first real company with employees and all that kind of stuff, was almost exclusively based on scarcity. I don't have what I need. It's life and death. My choices are everything. And I've got to go make great choices to get these outcomes that I must have to make payroll and all of these real dollars and cents. I'm kind of, you know, I'm really gifted at math. I can run budgets and spreadsheets and all that kind of stuff. And all of it was frankly untrue because when I run from fear and I make decisions on that, I can feel it. I'm so sensitive to it now, but like when my gut is just kind of wrenched and it's tight, I try not to run any decisions from that place. And I do all this kind of internal work that I write about in the book, the tuning process to vibe up so that any decisions I will make, even though they're not that important, are far more beneficial and far less destructive for the things that I am trying to manifest. I always try to tell myself when I'm, you know, stressed out or anything, just stop and breathe. Breath work is so powerful. It's hilarious that I'm that guy now because I was the opposite. You know, I have a real strong Christian background in my youth. I can really relate to those guys, but like Paul of Tarsus, I was the worst offender. I like was persecuting the church. I mean, if you talk to me in my 20s, it was so intense around, for lack of a better way of describing it, suffering, efforting. I mean, especially efforting, but it was, if it's to be, it's up to me, all that kind of crap. And one moment of true peace is so much more powerful in manifesting a grand reality. And it's not even like, so there's some masters and PhD levels to this. Like you can co-create a life. You can visualize and realize that in, but you don't have to do any of that stuff. Like one of the cool things about this dimension and it's the mechanisms is your personal kingdom of heaven. Others call the vortex. There are different words for it is behind the scenes working for you. And all you really have to do is get happy on a consistent basis and then watch the magic happen. The magic's been happening the whole time. But when you are angry or bitter or frustrated or full of fear and depression, you can't see it. I mean, like right now, it's a beautiful day in Denver, Colorado. I'm looking out my window. It's gorgeous for Denver. It's like, you know, 45 degrees. (laughs) But if I close my eyes and then close my ears, that reality goes away from me. I can't experience that reality. I'm not experiencing that reality. But did the reality go away? It didn't. It's right there. But I'm unable to experience it because my focus is locked down so that there's this grand reality out there for all of us. And our emotions have been sent here, designed to help us 
experience it. And it's on the upper scale of all the emotions that feel good anyway. I mean, why do some emotions feel good and some feel bad? I write about in the book is very similar to pain in the body. It's kind of arbitrary that in this dimension, if I slam my fist into a concrete wall, that's going to give me sharp pain. But if I work out a little bit, I'm going to get kind of a good kind of endorphin feeling. But all of it guides us into a better state. So I have two young, well, younger, they're seven and 10, but I just recently in the last few years got to watch them go through very complicated process of going from crawling to walking. And that one in particular, standing up and walking. And it's really not full of a lot of pain. There's the desire for more, which is good and right at the level of spirits. And that's something I also don't back away from is the desire for more. It's ingrained in your spirit. Just try not to want more. See how well that works for you. Yeah. <laughs> so wanting more is good. Just know that it's going to effortlessly manifest if you just kind of follow your bliss. And that following your bliss is not a final statement. It's a moment by moment kind of treasure hunt. And some of the things that work for me for a while stop working and you've got to let that go and move on to something new. So it's a constant every day, really kind of wonderful treasure hunt. After you do it for a while, it doesn't require all this attention. But it does mean I got to stay real open-minded and kind of open-handed, if you will, for the things that were working. Sometimes they stop working. I got to let that go and then open myself for something new. And if something's leaving my experience, if you stay really open, that means it's no longer serving me. And how do I know it's no longer serving me? Because I'm not enjoying it anymore. And then that means I'm about to get, I like to use the word promoted. I'm about to get moved into something new and expansive for me personally. So tell us how we actually dial into the frequency of wealth. So you actually do it through your emotions, essentially. I mean, your emotions are representing to us what the frequency that we are emitting and receiving. They're the same, one and the same. But you're both emitting and receiving, but it's a frequency of match. So your emotions tell you what essentially that frequency is. And frankly, at a very high level, they're all great. You know, it's kind of like pepper and salt. You don't want to eat that by itself, but you use it to season and flavor your food. Yeah. So at a super high level, it's not about avoiding all of the kind of down market frequencies. It's about really savoring all of them, but just being in command of that process. So if you're a painter or some sort of artist, you love all of the color bandwidths, the darks and the lights and the various contrasts, all of those things become something that you can really enjoy. So really so, taking the good so, and the bad to make it into a better life for yourself. Well, that's really more the PhD kind of style is once you've been doing this and practicing feeling good and watching that manifest really interesting forms of wealth. I mean, one of the things that I found out pretty quickly is I had a really narrow view of wealth that it could only look a particular way. And for me, I outsourced my power, loaned it to numbers for a long, long time. So if the number on a screen, which is really interesting that a number on a screen can really tell you how you're going to feel today. <laughs> if it's the right number, or if, if you have a number on a screen, I don't care if it's, you know, negative bank account of, you know, $50, or you had $5 million. And the next day you have $4 million that will turn you into a panic. But what happened? Nothing actually happened. It's just you know, the way you think a, about it, right? Right. And so I, for a long time, I still kind of have to do this. I don't really look at numbers very much because most of the time they can own me and not me own them. That's what I get into with strategic distraction. So it opened up all these avenues of wealth that I didn't really even know were there. And I'm sure they're infinite. But like for me, enjoying a great cup of coffee and slowing it down and having the sun in my face and using, I'm real physical too, so I train pretty hard and just really tapping into that instead of looking at it as something to get through. And this is where breath work really comes into, it taps into the present moment. 
but all of these kinds of wealth, you know, the laughter of my children and sunshine in my face and food. I used to just kind of get through meals. Now I try and enjoy them more, you know, stuff like that. And it's up to anybody how they want to do it. And nobody is doing it wrong. Even if you're suffering greatly, you'll be like me, probably. You'll get a lot of lessons from that. Sure. But what I've run into is a lot of unnecessary suffering, and I feel an internal tug to want to alleviate that if I can. So what happens is once you feel good and learn how to control that and know that you can get back to it at any moment, that you're not going to go another year of just total depression or feeling worthless and inadequate like a lot of us have felt for chunks of our life. When you know you have control to get back to peace, to get back to well-being at any time, then you feel far more confident and free to allow the contrasting frequencies to serve you. So if I jumped down into some, so I had to just do this Brazilian jiu-jitsu tournament, and it was hard, and I didn't enjoy every bit of it, but I did enjoy a lot of it. But it was the anticipation that was the most difficult. And I just got to work with that in my mind through the process of getting ready to compete and all the anxiety that comes with that and just kind of savor that. It's you really feel alive. I used to really avoid wanting to feel more anxiety. Now I can kind of invite it in, but it's on my choice. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And it seems like the message is change your thoughts, change your life. Is it really that easy? Yeah, actually, my message is change how you feel, change your life. So it's kind of like a prism or a film. You know, if you get into, I love quantum physics. And if you get into quantum physics, the model that describes this reality the best is a very rich hologram. And so how hologram works is like a movie projector. There's a film and it's blasted through with a very intense light source. And then it pops up a 3D image for a hologram or a 2D image for a movie. So your thought is like that film. But what's backing that thought is the energy that's pushing through it. So it's actually technically true that thought form is like taking essentially, you know, the zero point field or dark energy and turning it from infinite potential and collapsing it down into form. But, you know, you got at least 50,000 thoughts a day. It's too difficult for most of us to really work in that realm. It's much more elegant or easy. We have this elegant system, which is our emotional guidance system. And so it's really feel better now. Do the work, and which I describe in the book how to do it. One really effective way. It's not the only one. But find the things that help you feel better today, little things, especially, and your life will get better. So feel better first, and then wealth becomes far more available to you in what almost seems like an effortless way. Although you did do some effort, if for those of you who are efforters and need it to be, you know, work, right. you are actually doing some of the most intense work, which is using your willpower to take command of your thought and feeling life. And that kind of goes into, you had mentioned it briefly a little bit ago, strategic distraction, because you talk about in the book, one of the ways to, quote, retrain your brain, if you will, is by strategic distraction. So give us a little bit more on how that works. So it's a five-step process for me. Some people are just, you've met these people, you know these people that are just like stupid happy all the time yeah. and their life is just always working out. Right. And it's so frustrating because it's true. You right. really can just be happy and life will keep working out for you. I know people like this that I'm very close to. Uh, you know, money just shows up when I need it. And it's always true. And then of course, I was the type of person who created a whole backstory about political systems and all this other crap about how it's showing up and because other people are actually suffering to do it. But I was actually wrong and they were right. And so I like to be in their camp now, which is it's true, but I don't actually do that. I know it's natural to my being, 
but I still have to work with this really hijacked nervous system of mine. <laughs> and so I've had to employ some other techniques for hard gainers like me. And so I do a five-step process. Truth immersion is one of the steps and it's probably the most important. Uh, it's very effective to be around someone like me who will reinforce all the time what's true. Like you're doing great and things are working out for you and just relax and kind of let go and just try and find something to enjoy today. Stuff like that's really effective. But where strategic distraction comes in is if you're like me and let's say money specifically, I love money. I love it when it flows to me in radical abundance, which it often does. You know, the old saying, you know, I've been rich and I've been poor and I like rich better. Right. You know, Bob Hope. <laughs> I'm in that camp. So what strategic distraction is, if you want to manifest money and every time you think about money like me, you actually are thinking about the absence. And how do you know whether you're thinking about the presence or the absence? How you feel about it while you're thinking about it. If you feel fear, anxiety, frustration, any of those negative feelings, you're actually thinking about the absence of it, not the presence of it. If you can feel good, like you think about some new money coming in and it just feels great, then think about it. But you don't actually have to think about the thing itself or health is another one. So if you've got a bad health diagnosis, you don't have to focus your brain on positive thoughts around health to actually improve your health. All of this stuff like wealth, health, relationship, satisfaction, meaning, really what we're doing here, and this is what strategic distraction does, is we're just getting the hell out of the way right. with our minds. Like if you can get to a no mind state, so one of the things that I've really learned how to do over the last several years is really get to a no mind where I actually don't have thoughts running like a squirrel in a cage through my mind. I can get to a place anytime during the day where my mind really stops and I just get into a field of awareness. My guess is that that's because, you know, if you're panicking about something, you can't make good decisions about it. But if you're in such like a depression about how much money you don't have, you can't, as you say, get out of your way to try and get yourself to the point where you can get some money. Is that correct? Well, yeah, except that still is the kind of I got to do stuff uh -huh. bit. So let me ask you this. If you believe in Newtonian physics and how that's working, all of the world's energy is essentially a derivative. I mean, there's some chemical reactions happening at the Earth's core, but most of it is coming from sunlight. So everything like oxygen, you know, photosynthesis is coming from sunlight. How much sunlight are you efforting? How much do you have to effort for something as basic as the foundational function of wealth as the energy from the sun? None. You have 37 trillion cells in your body. Go on YouTube at some point and look up a illustrated video of one of those 37 trillion cells. It's a universe of complexity. How much of that are you efforting? You're not efforting any of it. To like health fundamentally is just stop destroying health by being so stressed out. Right. Stress is what's killing most people. You know, this used to be something people understood better than they do today. But there's all kinds of illnesses that are really just a function of spiritual unwellness. Huh. Like you're out of alignment and what that looks like is you're in blame, you're in anger, you're in guilt, you're in shame. And that is the dis-ease. Same thing as wealth. You're not actually earning it. It's not something you can earn. It's your divine right. And we all maybe experience that differently. Some people want like for sunlight, some people want to live in Southern California like you. And <laughs> some people can live in Seattle and they just don't need as much of it. You know, direct sunlight. But the point is, if I am keeping myself from it, it's not stopping the sunlight, but it is stopping my experience of it. And the same thing is true on all these aspects of the fundamental parts of our experience. 
when we get out of resistance. So that's one of the five points is releasing resistance. And that's fundamentally all you have to do. And strategic distraction allows for that, which says this, I can't think about certain things, relationships, for instance, I can't think about relationships without really constantly pinging and emitting a signal that says, I don't have enough. You know, it's not enough. I don't have enough. That's scarcity. For me, it was really money. I don't have enough. I need to get more. I couldn't for many years think about money without really thinking about its absence. And how I knew is how I felt when I thought about money. I always felt fear, anxiety, stress. What I can do is I can go cage fighting and I forget to think about it. Or one of the things that really works for me too is service work. Anything that makes me forget time works. So when I would, you know, work with guys and sit down with them for an hour or whatever, I really enjoyed that. And it would feel like time didn't exist and it would be an hour would be done in an instant. And we can all know experiences like that. Going to the movies, watching funny movies, that's all essentially, it's not quote unquote creating wealth. It's a fine way to describe it, but it's moving me up the scale so I can experience the wealth that's already here. And that'll start showing up like I hate my job and maybe a new one comes to me. You don't have to start quitting your job or relationships. You would, that would be a, a disruptive. Sure. What you can do is you just start to get happy. You're going to start seeing all these like really interesting things happen. Like people will come to you. Someone will call you about doing a podcast. You know, <laughs> it's like stuff will come to you because you've heard about it a lot, a lot of attraction that which is like unto itself is drawn, but it's exactly right. These things will be drawn to you. When you live down market into shame, guilt, fear, things to be afraid of will be drawn to you. Wow. Circumstances to be afraid of will be drawn to you. Circumstances to be stressed out about for you individually that might not stress somebody else out, but will definitely stress you out. You're admitting that signal. It's drawing all of that to you. When you move up market and you get into joy, joy is so powerful. Love. Love's a four-letter word that people interpret so many ways, so I use different ones. Well-being. When you feel calm and peace, it's drawing these things. What did you want the billions of dollars for? To feel the absence of fear or feel powerful. And those things will be drawn to you. Those circumstances uniquely designed to light you up will be drawn into your experience. You don't have to go out there to go get them. So that's strategic distraction to do things that are completely different than you like about improving your health, like watching funny movies. There's been thousands of documented cases of curing terminal diseases by just watching comedies where people just laughing and laughing and laughing and then they have these you know instantaneous cures and it can be that simple it's usually not always that simple for all of us but you can't have it without it if you stay angry you stay bitter you're going to keep finding there's going to be new disease showing up in your body even if you have a lot of money some people can be really angry and have a lot of money but that's not wealth for me i have to include it all including an abundance profuse abundance of money I mean, there's a difference between rich and wealthy because a lot of people get rich overnight and lose it overnight. If you don't you know, know what to do with it, then it doesn't really help you anyway. I was one of those guys. I was one of the rich guys. I got it and lost it a couple of times. But I'm in a place where I'm uh, out of need, the yearning. The minute I feel that, I go deal with it on a, for lack of a better word, a spiritual plane. Like I need to change my thoughts, but I can't just go in there and shove like, you know, whatever needles into my brain that start knitting in new thoughts. That's what strategic distraction is all about is like getting something that really grabs your attention that also feels good right. and going with it. Like if you're a practice sufferer, you actually are so programmed to believe, you know, feeling good is weak. You know, it's soft. It's a consolation yeah. prize. Why but when that? you really dig, 
list out every single thing that you want. I don't care what it is. And ask yourself, why do I want this? What is the outcome I'm looking for? And the outcome is, I believe I'm going to feel better in the having of it. Why would I want something that I think is going to make me feel like crap? No, I want these things because I don't feel good enough now. And a bunch of money or a bunch of health or a new relationship or a, a new body is going to make me feel better. You know, I was in uh, bodybuilding and powerlifting and a bunch of stuff when I was, uh, you know, late teenager. And I used to train uh, lots of people. And in particular, I trained a number of women. And I was raised by my mother primarily. And so I kind of just knew that most women have a body image disorder. So they feel bad about their bodies. Rarely do women, even the ones that look like they've got great bodies, feel good about it. And so they're work, 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 diets, exercise, but without the actual internal dynamic changing, the external will not change for long. Now, some diets with that, you know, like gastrointestinal surgery and stuff will have such a dramatic effect that the actual internal view of self does start to change. So it's a, you can work at it with like a pincer movement from both angles. But I will tell you this fact, if the internal one does not actually change, the external one will revert back. And so the shame is what's attaching that. And so that has to be addressed. So it's not only is it not soft, it's the hardest thing in the world, especially for people like me, to actually learn how to feel good, to actually get to joy. You want to go help the world, all the suffering children of the world? You cannot do it from turmoil. You need to come from a place of joy, of peace, of love, and that's way up the scale. You know, it's like physician, heal thyself. You've got to do that. So when I would do body sculpting with women in particular, but some men have this too, I just found myself working as much on their body image yeah. and providing a mirror to them, which was me, to say, you look great. You look sexy as hell. You just are. Whatever weight you are, you can be sexy and feel sexy. It doesn't matter. And then once you get to that state, you will find that body that you kind of idolize showing up more easily. And you get to then, instead of going suffering and doing things you hate, like I don't like to run, I'm more of a stand my ground and fight kind of dude. To make myself go run 10 miles a day is the wrong move. I want to find the things that I really, really enjoy to do. Like the body's here to use. It's a great gift. It's a phenomenal gift. And we're here to use it. But it should feel really good. Now that can be, you can be you know, kind of a crazy person, a little bit like me and get into the like challenge of training and getting to that, you know, meta state of no mind through pushing your body a long way and, you know, athletics and stuff like that. But you'll see even in athletes, the people who are having the most fun getting into that flow state are progressing much faster yeah. than those of us that are struggling. And so it's on every plane of existence. It's not soft. It's the most challenging thing in the world for those of us who've lived with these belief systems. Now, belief systems are just thoughts I keep thinking, but for me, it was, I was in mortal danger all of the time. My nervous system would tell me all day, every day, there is a threat on your life, it's significant, and you gotta go solve for that. And, and so my mind projected that more money would do that. But it was all coming from this nervous system that was just in a high state. Now I've learned how to like not label as much and the difference as I like to, you know, as I've heard many times between anxiety and excitement is breath. Yeah. And so I just breathe into it more and more. But that is to me a real challenging work, enjoyable work. But truly the things that you want are really on the other side of taking command of your life in a way that feels better as you live it, not as you accomplish something, but as you live it. And then those things that you wanted to accomplish 
sort of effortlessly show up. You know, here's what's interesting. And we all think it's the parents working so hard and suffering to provide for children, but it's actually the most natural thing to spirit to just only do stuff that's quote unquote fun. Now, when you do that, like my kids could never imagine choosing to do something that wasn't enjoyable. That's true. Uh, They think it's like insane. Like, why would you ever want to do that? (laughs) And, you know, we call those millennials and this younger generation lazy, but watch these guys create an entire new economy as they're doing every day. And because all of this is really being created from thought form, from creative thought form, and the most powerful, essentially, the most powerful laser punching through that thought form comes from non-resistant or a non-suffered state. You know, all the great inventors, these guys would like sit in dark rooms in a state of kind of peace and just let the ideas flow to them. I mean, I've studied this. I studied wealth my entire adult life because I didn't have it and I wanted to get it. And, you know, these plays like Think and Grow Rich and some of these other, you know, these seminal books, but it's still kind of like this work hard and persistence. So persistence and hard work ends up showing up. But when you do it from a state of joy, I can tell you, like, I remember when my oldest was like three years old, he would like jump out of bed and go, I am ready to kick butt. Right. Let's go do some stuff. And so it's these lower things like depression, fear that really keep us from living our best life. And that best life is going to have a lot of activity with it. Just don't think that that activity is actually generating all of these wonderful things. Just understand that it's actually the joy of living is a powerful way to live. And these things like the radio station metaphor just keep kind of flooding in. I tie people into their 37 trillion cells because health is fundamental. Just try living without it. I did for a couple of years and I prefer health, but I don't take any credit for engineering these 37 trillion cells and turning them into organs and eyes and brains and all the stuff that's happening within my body. I'm not efforting any of that, but when I'm under a tremendous amount of stress, I do seem to be able to influence and break the health down. And that's what's important. When I read the book, it gave me motivation. And when I hear you speak, it gives me motivation. But to keep that motivation going is another thing. And you mentioned that you work with people individually to find the frequency of wealth and to keep going towards this path. Are you still doing that? Yeah, I am. And I'm making myself more available. And then I've got folks that have kind of graduated through my program, for lack of a better word, that I also connect people with. An easy way to connect with me is through Instagram, the frequency of wealth. And so what would you say are the biggest benefits of working with you as opposed to trying to find the frequency of wealth on their own? It just depends if you're doing it or not. So some people are just going to get that like permission to do what is most natural to the human spirit, which is to feel good, to do things that feel good. There's nothing more natural than that. It's not natural to keep literally banging your head against a concrete wall. It hurts and your body keeps telling you loudly to stop. And the same thing is to doing things and participating in things that make me feel bad. This dimension and the power of the human spirit is so immensely vast. When you just remove a few of the little resistant barriers that are being self-generated, because all of the things that are limiting you are coming from you. That's actually the really good news. You don't have to go out there and do something. It's all right there. And it's so fun to be me now. Because with just a little bit of nudging or just removing a little bit of these, helping to remove a little bit of these barriers, people get set free. And there's nothing more thrilling than to watch somebody get really lit up. Definitely. So again, let's let's give people a way to get a hold of you because I, I for one, want to use your services and hopefully other people will too. So you said that Instagram is the best way to contact you? Yeah, Instagram is the best way for everybody to kind of find me. I'm Brenton Mix. It's one way and the other one is the frequency of wealth. My uh, email address is brenton.mix at gmail. 
I make myself pretty available as I can. And there's a lot of things that I do joyfully, but this, you know, tied for first place with playing with my kiddos and being with my family. Well, we're going to make sure that all of this information gets on the website too, so that people can contact you through sensiblechat.com and also all the resources that you've given them. And of course, if they want to get the book, which I hope they will, because I think it's a wonderful book, they can get it at amazon.com. That's exactly right. I love what you guys are doing. Um, I really appreciate you uh, you know, having me on and talking about very fundamental structuring part of the reality of creating wealth in, you know, in a person's life. So I really appreciate you. Well, gosh, thank you for all your time. I really appreciate you being here and giving us all the information. It's a lot of great stuff. So I know I'm going to be going through it three and four times to just kind of absorb everything and contacting you for individual meetings. So that'll be a lot of fun. And Brent, I really want to thank you again for being with us today. You bet. My pleasure. Take care, Bobby. Our guest professor today has been Brenton Mix, author of The Frequency of Wealth. Visit him online at thefrequencyofwealth.com. Well, Sensible Bobby, I can't even believe the information that Brent just gave us. It totally turns my outlook as to my philosophical stance on money around. And actually, if I'm being honest, it turns it around in a way that I had never really looked at it before. I had never made the connection between my metaphysical position and my financial position. But after listening to Brent, it kind of makes sense. Yeah, I agree. Everything that he talked about and what I read completely made sense. And it seems like such a simple thing, but sometimes it takes somebody pointing it out in a different way for you to actually be able to see it. And philosophy isn't a thing that people are thinking about when they're dealing with their checkbook or shopping or anything else. It's not like, you know, when I'm standing there in the grocery aisle going, okay, do I want this grape juice? Man, is my heart in the right place? What's my relationship with the sun or a happy day? Or We don't put that kind of thought into what we're doing with our finances, but it kind of makes sense to be in a good place metaphysically before you try and tackle big things like your financial life, so to speak. Right. And that's why I thought it was really important because, yeah, you're right. When we're standing there buying grape juice and milk, you don't think about that kind of thing, which is a great reason why if you think about it ahead of time, your mind's already going to be in the right place when you go shopping. Yeah, or- I don't I don't think it's something that you're always going to think about at the moment that you're going to go spend money, though. It's a change of your philosophical stance, not just something that you automatically call upon when you're about to hit the shopping aisle. Yeah, no, it just gives you a different outlook and philosophy on money. So you kind of learn to put that inside your psyche and use it for all the decisions that you make. I think it was very pertinent to touch on the psychology of spending, certainly having Brent on as a guest, but I don't think a lot of people think about the psychology of their spending especially if they're angry or sad or depressed or whatever it is. It's just an automatic thing to do, much like drinking if you've had a bad day at work or taking drugs or eating or anything else. We are not thinking about those things. And so Brent's interview, at least for me, got me to step back and think, wow, Probably a good idea to understand myself a little bit better so I don't go and buy 14 Big Mac (laughs) meals and gorge for the rest of the day just because I feel bad that I didn't get a certain job or what have you. Right. And on top of that, it's just such a different mindset. If you can be in a happier place, that's going to help you in your life overall. And it's certainly going to help you make better financial decisions. But every decision in your life coming from a happier place. Very enlightening, very useful information. 
So what are your thoughts? What causes you to spend from an emotional place? And how did you combat it? Was it a person? Was it an event? I want to hear from you. So email me at sensiblechat at gmail.com. Now, if you're a budgeting geek like me, you're going to love the next episode. We're going to talk taxes, and this is my favorite time of year because it gives me the opportunity to find as many ways as possible to keep more of my money rather than stuffing it into the pocket of the IRS. So I'm going to bring back CPA Michelle Kagan. She is going to tell us about a lot of tax breaks we may not be aware of. And trust me, tax breaks are not just for the rich. So be sure to tune in to the next episode. Until then, keep spending and saving the sensible way. That wraps up another episode of Sensible Chat with your host, Sensible Bobby. If you need help with your budget or want to share your thoughts, write to her at sensiblechat at gmail.com or leave a voicemail on the contacts page at sensiblechat.com. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes.